1: Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
0: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts.
1: From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm back. Did you miss me? I'm Ro Scott. And a very happy New Year to you all. As we say, let's kick it up for 2022 on today's program, the Georgia Resilience and Opportunity Fund. It's a guaranteed income program with a focus solely on women. We'll learn more about all of that and how this is aimed. The new pilot is aimed at reducing economic insecurity and wealth disparities. Also, how the state's largest hospital, Grady Memorial, right here in Atlanta, is coping with the surge of COVID-19 patients, fueled by what, of course, the highly transmissible Omicron variant, of the coronavirus. All those community conversations are just ahead. But first, this Atlanta, yes, has a new mayor. Andre Dickens was sworn in as the city's 61st mayor during a ceremony at Georgia Tech's Bobby Dodd Stadium Monday. Mayor Dickens discussed a lot, including a number of his priorities in his inaugural address, making housing more affordable, improving transportation infrastructure, hiring more police officers. And of course, he addressed the push to create a new city from Atlanta's Buckhead neighborhood.
2: We don't need separate cities. I said we don't need separate cities. We must be one city with one bright future. I told you before that I draw circles and I don't draw lines to divide us. And I'll tell you now that I don't want any lines dividing this great city. We need to believe in the power of drawing circles and coming together to move Atlanta, and I mean move all of Atlanta to a brighter future.
1: The newly elected members of Atlanta City Council were also sworn in Monday, after which they held a brief organizational meeting. Meanwhile, as mentioned, the latest wave of the COVID 19 pandemic, well, it shows little sign of slowing down here in Georgia. Now, the latest figures from the State Department of Public Health show the rolling average of newly confirmed infections is as high as it's ever been and has been trending sharply upward. Now, those figures are from last week. We well, may say, why? Well, the agency says a large amount of data overwhelmed its system, preventing the release of updated figures on Monday. And while case counts are up, COVID-19 hospitalizations in the state are still below where they were doing the Delta way, though that number is trending upward short, sharply. Also, MARTA customers take note because, well, MARTA is canceling select train trips due to a shortage of workers. The reason? What else? COVID-19. MARTA is advising customers to allow extra time to complete their trips. Dozens of bus trips have been canceled as well. Now, MARTA says they will keep all of these cancellations. They will let you know what's happening through its social media channels. And commuters can also sign up for automatic alerts on Martyrs' website. And finally.
2: And the dogs have won the Orange Bowl and won the playoff semifinal and will head to the national championship game for the second time. And look at the rematch. It's the same one it was the first time. Georgia and Alabama will meet in Indianapolis, Indiana on January 10th for college football's big prize.
1: Well, who you got, Georgia Bulldogs or the Alabama Crimson Tide? By the way, at this time, you can still get tickets for the national championship game between UGA and Alabama, ranging from $500 to just under $2,000 apiece. Or you could pay nothing and stay home like me, watch from your sofa or wherever, order your favorite wings from your neighborhood eatery. By the way, producer Daniel Razel says lemon pepper wings, dry or wet, are the best. Daniel, I think you may have a point there. If you disagree, just email me rose at org. This is Closer Look.
0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more.
1: From WABE in Atlanta, you're listening to Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Before leaving office, then-Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms announced a partnership with the Urban League of Greater Atlanta. Now, this was called the Launch Impact Income Mobility Program for Atlanta Community Transformation. It was the city's first wide guaranteed income pilot program open to low-income Atlantis. We'll have more on that program in an upcoming edition of Closer Look. The core of the concept, provide money to low-income households to help cover basic cost of living and also hopefully establish a path of financial security. It's estimated since 2018 there have been at least 20 guaranteed income pilot programs that have launched in the U.S. Now families and individuals receiving anywhere from $300 to $1,000 a month. And depending on whom you ask, it has a lot of Promises, and some, they say, it causes issues. But the Georgia Resilience and Opportunity Fund is set to launch here, but its focus will be on women. And joining me now to discuss more of this is Hope Woolensack, the executive director of the Georgia Resiliency and Opportunity Fund, and also Atlanta City Councilman Amir Farroki. Thank you both for taking the time, and Happy New Year.
3: Thank you, Rose. It's great to be with you as always. Happy New Year to you, too.
4: Hope you're with me. Yes, I'm here. Thank you so much for having us. Let's begin
1: with you, Hope, because I gave a very generic explainer for typically how we define a guaranteed income program. Give our listeners a more detailed definition, if you will.
4: Terrific. Thank you for asking by guaranteed income we mean um, recurring payments to members of a community for an ongoing period of time. So the the grow or the Georgia resilience and opportunity funds uh, in her hands program will provide an average of $850 a month for 24 months to program participants in Atlanta, starting in the old Fourth Ward neighborhood and soon to spread across in 2022 to sites across the state. So we're excited. It'll be one of the largest guaranteed income programs in the country and certainly the largest focused on Black women.
1: Yeah, we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Council Member uh, Amir Faroqi, you and I had a conversation not too long about this where you were talking about this type of program coming to Atlanta, but I want to get your thoughts. You care to add anything about when we talk about income, these these type of programs, and also follow up with what people tend to get wrong about a program like this.
3: Yeah, thank thank you, Rose. And thank you for having Hope and I on your show today. Uh, I want to take a step back, if I can, just quickly. You know, I represent six neighborhoods on the city council, one of which is the Old Fourth Ward. Mm -hmm. That neighborhood, which I live in, and uh, I I think you live in as well, um, it's seen remarkable changes over the last two decades. And so the genesis of this work came from really observing that there's just Uh, A SIGNIFICANT AMOUNT OF ENTRENCHED POVERTY IN THE NEIGHBORHOOD. WE HAVE THE LARGEST COMMUNITY OF SECTION 8, uh, SO HOUSING ASSISTED RESIDENTS IN THE AMERICAN SOUTH. 46% OF BLACK RESIDENTS LIVE MAKING LESS THAN $25,000 A YEAR. SO ONCE I TOOK OFFICE AND EVEN BEFORE, I mean, I THINK THAT THIS NOTION OF um, ECONOMIC INSECURITY WAS FRONT AND CENTER, BOTH VISIBLY AND and FROM A POLICY PERSPECTIVE. Uh, AND SO uh, WE'VE SEEN CASH TRANSFER GUARANTEED INCOME PROGRAMS um, POP UP AROUND THE COUNTRY, AS YOU MENTIONED. I think one of as as a way to create kind of an income floor some basic security uh, some peace of mind that allows you to make really good decisions for your career for your kids uh, for yourself Um, you know i think one of the misconceptions the most common misconception is uh, probably rooted in this american individualism that most of us have which is uh, if you're giving people cash that somehow they won't work but i always say in response to that if someone gave you 800 bucks a month or 500 bucks a month would you would you quit working and the answer inevitably is no, it's not enough to, to quit working on, but it's meant to create a sense of security so that um, we all make better decisions and, and can, can do more for ourselves and our families.
1: Hope, what do you think that through your lens, people probably have a, either they get wrong through your lens or you get the most questions about when we talk about a guaranteed income program.
4: Absolutely. Adding on to what council member Feroke described, most people, Think, have questions about how the money will be spent and sort of why the focus on black, black women. I think that it is a pervasive misconception that folks who are experiencing economic insecurity have made poor choices and it's not the result of uh, poor policies that have been failing people for far too long. The majority of Americans, can't afford a $400 emergency and we know that those this economic insecurity and growing wealth divide is concentrated in communities of color it's concentrated among women and so really a program like this is acknowledging the deservedness of all of us to live a decent dignified life it's acknowledging that currently our economy is failing lots of different groups of people but the most acute impacts are, are, are faced by various groups, among them being Black women. And so instead of looking for, we need really solutions, policies, programs, that are are bold, that are changing the paradigm, that are taking a new approach to these really entrenched problems. We're never gonna see progress if we continue to do the same things. So we're excited that this program is gonna generate not only greater economic stability for the uh, 650 women who will participate, but also incredible policy and program learnings that hopefully will have a wider impact and change the paradigm on how we think about economic insecurity.
1: And either one of you can tackle this first, because this concept is not new. I mean, this is something that's been around for at least 50 years ago. Amir Farroki, Councilman Farroki, you've always talked about, and I believe, hope this is even on the, the your organization's website. You make the link here to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And, and Dr. King calling for a guaranteed income in order to help deal with issues of systemic economic injustices as well as racial injustices as well. either one of you can tackle that
4: it is is fitting that this exactly this is a potentially a bold idea but it is not a new idea by any by any means this has been an idea that has been around for some time and one of its great biggest advocates was dr martin luther king in his final book chaos or community king called for a guaranteed income he called it the simplest approach that would be the most effective to to solve poverty um and so even then it was a widely discussed discussed measure that king was sort of Putting his, his uh, support behind. And so it is fitting that this person in this neighborhood, the old fourth ward, of course, where Dr. King was born, where he pastored Ebenezer Baptist Church, where he and Credit today are buried, this really this neighborhood that is an icon of racial and economic justice in Atlanta, across the country, that in this neighborhood, we have the largest concentration of Section 8 housing in the Southeast, juxtaposed to million-dollar newly constructed homes. And so what does this inequality in this neighborhood and the history here charge us to do. And so I think that was really the backdrop and that call to action that King laid forth back in 1968 have really called us into this work and drove the community driven task force that council member, council member Farroki put together that really recommended this program and recommended the focus. Focus on Black women, but certainly this concept um, has been around for some time, and we're excited that it's finally getting traction and that it can return to its roots in this specific neighborhood, both given the historic trends and ongoing trends.
1: Councilmember Faroqi, what's your response to someone says, "Well, how is this different from some type of welfare?" and Have you had that question before?
3: Yeah, that's a great question, Rose. Uh, so, I, what's interesting is that the concept of a guaranteed income or cash transfers. Uh, is find support on both sides of the aisle, whether liberal or conservative, um, for for various reasons. But, um, you know, it's, however you want to define it, I I think there's a, there's, for most of us, there's a common understanding that we all benefit when folks are doing well, when folks Mm -hmm. um, are able to pursue a career uh, that they want to pursue. Um, They're not running from job to job every six months, um, which creates stability and allows folks to take care of their children and, and their elders. Um, we all benefit from that, whether you're in a, uh, a vulnerable economic position or not. And so uh, the notion of providing folks with an income floor, our most vulnerable residents and neighbors with an mm-hmm. income floor, um, has enormous societal uh, and economic impact for all of us. And so there's, there's, I think, an interest we should all have in making sure that the least of us um, oftentimes generationally disadvantaged for a whole host of reasons that Hope hinted Hope at earlier. Uh, is is good for us all. And I, I will note, you know I think what's interesting is liberals support it because of um, you know, uh, I think the the kind of racial, economic justice, kind of basic income security uh, that that I think a lot of folks believe in. And on the right, folks support it, and I don't always agree with this, but they, they support it as a as a substitution for a lot of the social programs that exist. It's actually more efficient and less bureaucratic if you just give people cash rather than having a food stamp program or a housing program. Mm-hmm. And there's a robust debate as to whether it should be replace something like that or um, be supplemental. But uh, you know, all of that is rooted in this notion that we need a social safety net because for too many Americans, no matter how hard you work, no matter how many jobs you have. Uh, it's harder and harder to make ends meet Uh, and that's especially true for black and brown americans and so um, this is a concept that is again not new it's been around for centuries you see countries and states uh, have implemented some aspects of guaranteed income and uh, i think i thought early on is if we can't experiment with this at the local level the most agile form of government um, then we really aren't doing our work and i I will know there's no public dollars engaged in this program all the funds for this program have been raised through private philanthropy and individuals, both locally and around
1: the country. And that's what I want to get, get into, because Hope, with this in her hands, an initiative of the Grow Fund, you all, how much money have you all been able to raise? You said you're launching a $13 million guaranteed income program for black women in Georgia. That That's a lot of money. How much do you actually have?
4: Yes, so great question. We've currently raised about twelve million, and so we're looking to close the gap on that final final million, and we're excited that it will be one of the largest programs in the country, as I mentioned previously, and certainly the largest focused on black women.
1: Well, let's um get into some questions here about the program because why why focusing solely on black women?
4: Absolutely. This largely came as a a recommendation from the old fourth board economic security task force. When we began this work, we really were looking into the root causes of economic insecurity. And of course, it's pervasive, felt across many groups, not only in Atlanta, Metro Atlanta, but across the country. Metro Atlanta has has the the lowest economic mobility of any city in the country, some of the most entrenched inequalities, some of the most uh, entrenched poverty rates. And yet, even among that, we saw that Black women were, because of systemically created inequalities, both historic and ongoing policy choices, Black women were really facing the brunt of that. And yet, in spite of that, We talk to black women, we talk to members of the community, they're incredibly resilient and resourceful with what they have, but we set up system, that we have systematically created inequality. So for example, black women are on average paid 63 cents on the dollar
5: Mm
4: -hmm. uh, compared to white men. They're twice as likely to live in poverty as compared to white women in Georgia. They face, face a really high risk of being stuck in poverty. And so guaranteed income could be a particularly powerful tool to combat some of these wealth and wage inequalities and provide an income floor for a community that for far too long policies have really have really marginalized and skipped over this group.
1: And, and hope someone listening says, well, are you we talking about w- women who may women with children or just if you are a, a black woman and you are, you figure into this the low income category because you, you, they can't apply. You all are specifically targeting in certain communities. Is that correct?
4: Yes, that's correct. So eligibility for the program will be dependent on living within a specific region. As we mentioned, the launch site will be in the Old Fourth Ward, but we'll be expanding to Southwest Georgia and some um, suburban Atlanta areas as well. And then it'll be a combination of where where one lives and then their income as well. And um, eligible participants do not need to be a parent. So child status um, uh, is not relevant for participation.
1: And as you know, and, and obviously Councilmember Farroki knows, because a zip code, you know, the zip code, you, you can have on one side of the street, as he mentioned earlier, a million dollar townhomes, and across the street, you have folks who are not living in that type of, of residence. So, how are you going to, how will you be able to get this information, invite these folks to, are you going to go door to door? Are you using census data?
4: Yeah, sort of of all of the above, we'll be going door to door in a lot of communities. We'll be working really closely with community partners that have relationships within the communities that that we're operating and really looking at this as a community-based effort. And then of course, yeah, talking to folks one-on-one about their potential eligibility, as well as mailers within within certain subsets of eligible zip codes. If the whole zip code is not potentially eligible,
1: because you look at some other areas, some other communities, you look at the, the some on the west side and some neighborhoods over there. Obviously, Southwest Atlanta, Southeast Atlanta. Uh, will those co- communities, those populations, also be participated? Women in those p- communities be allowed to participate?
4: Right now, the program is focused on the Old Fourth Ward neighborhood, some areas in southwest Atlanta, and then some areas on the the south side of, of, of the metro Atlanta area. And so we know that this need, this program, even... Given its scale, even though it's going to be one of the largest programs in the country, we know it is a drop in the bucket compared to mm-hmm. the problem. And so we really are excited when there are more programs launching, when there are sort of more dollars invested in this work, and we hope that this this launch is actually a launch pad for other similar work that can happen across our city and across our state and even the country.
1: The voice you hear is Hope Woolen Sachs. She's the executive director of the Georgia Resiliency and Opportunity Fund, and I'm also joined by Atlanta City Councilman Amir Faroqi. and we're talking about guaranteed income program and hope i want to stay with you for a moment because i think a lot of listeners have questions here because i get the emails how do you determine what metrics do you use to determine how effective this is is doing in terms of helping in this case we're talking about black women and obviously do you are you asking them to provide how they're spending the money how do you determine how much a woman will get those i mean i think those are fair questions
4: Yeah, absolutely. So the program design itself, um, the $850 a month on average, in addition to the 24 month duration of the program, was designed in coalition with community members themselves. And so we both did a ton of research on on an amount that would be significant enough to hopefully help help move the needle, substantially increase folks' income, and also was something that we could feasibly make happen. Um, and so the $850 a month in 24 months, the duration of the program is was really developed in coalition with community members. And we know lots of programs across the country are, are doing 12 months. We're super excited to be able to do 24 months, um, knowing that doubling that length of time will just hopefully increase one's economic stability. And so that's how the, the program design was really developed. And we think it's very important that community members themselves have a say in those most impacted by the problem should have the most power over those solutions. So that is a huge a huge component of this work and, and in our program design and even the recommendation for a guaranteed income program itself. Um, In terms of the policy, in terms of the learnings from this program, um, we're interested in in a bunch of different things um, from economic, financial stability or volatility. How does this help people smooth their income over time and how does a smoother income help to improve any number of outcomes? We know it is really hard to plan for one's future, to plan even midterm goals. And you're constantly worried about how you're going to pay rent and put food on the table. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, oftentimes managing multiple jobs. And so we're really interested in financial stability and volatility. We're interested in, in emotional well-being, physical well-being, not only for program participants but their families and communities. Individuals often experience cash shortfalls. But those have ripple effects across entire family units, entire communities, even entire zip codes. Um, so we're also interested in investment in in investment in children agency over the uh, program participants future and even sort of civic and community engagement if one has more time are they able to be more engaged in their community finally um how will program participants spend the money we won't be um Program participants are free to, to spend the money how they know how they know is best and to meet the, the needs of their life. We know people are masters of their own experience. And so program participants really this is meant to give the agility and flexibility for participants to really spend the cash how they know is best and how is going to help best them move forward. But how will
1: you collect that information? Are you going to ask them to volunteer how this extra 850 has been, which is the average you just mentioned, has been helping them? Because I imagine you need to have some sort of uh, of information that you all can use to assess the effectiveness of this.
4: Yeah, we, ha- we have a, an incredible evaluation team at Appalachian State University led by Leah, Leah Hamilton, who is going to lead the evaluation on the components that we just measured. Uh, participation in that evaluation is completely voluntary for program participants. This program is truly no strings attached. So if they choose to participate in the evaluation and in, in those surveys and interviews, that is completely up to them. And then on, on the back end, we'd ask, we'd ask folks to maybe self-report. We also, this program some of the core principles are based on agency, trust, and the dignity of the individual. That sure. right now, folks who are receiving any type of assistance usually live under pretty strict guidelines and pretty heavy surveillance that actually make it tougher to get ahead. And so we want to make sure that our program doesn't perpetuate any of that and actually works to debunk a lot of it and respects people's agency and humanity in the process. Councilmember Farroki,
1: any concerns that you have about this program or something that you are looking personally or even as a, as a council member here, because this is your district. What are you hoping to get back from to see how effective this program is?
3: Yeah. So look, I I think uh, there are no concerns on my part. I mean, I think it's, um, I'm insatiably curious about this, which is why we, uh, I think the task force and the task force made this recommendation. And then we launched this nonprofit that hope is leading with, with really um, boldness and excellence uh, you know, I think for, for me as a as a city council member, the reality is is that uh, from a policy perspective, it's very very difficult, if not impossible, for cities to fund these types of programs at scale, um, given the need. And so, what we're hoping is through this process and the learnings that come out of it, that they begin to, and we'll we'll work with other nonprofits and others to kind of push this, assuming there's useful learnings, but that we. We are able to influence state and federal policymakers to consider cash transfer programs as a, as a um, as one of the best interventions we can have to stabilize communities and individuals, and, and um, I guess mitigate any uh, generational income inequality and and, and insecurity. So uh, I think that you know a lot of us have experienced over the last years a cash transfer from the U.S. government uh, as a result of the COVID uh, pandemic, uh, and so I think the the mindset and, and kind of broader public acceptability of cash transfer payment is not as foreign as it was a few years ago. Um, I mean, residents of Alaska get a cash transfer every year from their, their oil revenue. I mean, this is, this is not some uh, far-flung radical idea. It's actually a, a well-proven approach, but we wanna try it for uh, what's our, our most vulnerable residents in Atlanta uh, and take the learnings from that and hopefully influence state and federal policy so that we see more cash transfer programs as a way to, um, to strengthen our society.
1: Hope, let me ask you this. What other cities or communities around the nation have you all looked at or can you even talk about here where folks can look up and research and say, okay, I get it. Here's something that has worked in the past for or is working for another city.
4: Yeah, Stockton, California ran a guaranteed income program providing $500 a month. Their program just recently concluded um, earlier at the end of 2021, a lot of their Pre- preliminary findings are already out, and the results are very encouraging. Magnolia Mothers Trust in Jackson, Mississippi also has a program focused on Black women, which has also seen really incredible results, not only in the lives of the program participants, but their families and children, um, and there are a number of other programs across the country, but principally those two, I think, are, are some of the ones where the results are already out. Many have launched, not as many have results quite yet. So. Those two are ones to definitely look at.
1: The one you mentioned in Stockton, which was Stockton's SEED program, and I read where uh, part of the results revealed that those who were participating were, as they put it, quote, twice as likely to find full-time work compared to those who weren't. And also folks indicated they were better able to handle emergency expenses. I think you mentioned that the reports we've heard now for a couple of years that many of us don't have $400 for an emergency right on hand if something happens. So Stockton, the Stockton C program is indeed one that you could point to. As we wrap up, let me get your thoughts on this, because if cities are doing this, you know, just cities and counties, what would it say if there was something like this in terms of universal, I know that Andrew Yang, a uh, former uh, presidential candidate, has launched what he thinks. He has talked about that. What was a thousand dollars a month, something like that. Um, what does it say to you to the success of these programs that maybe if there was a more national for everyone to take advantage of who's eligible? Uh, what do you think the outcomes would be? I hope I'll start with you.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And and you're right that so many cities across the country have really embarked on this work, which is one of the reasons we're so excited to have a statewide program, because we know that cash and cash transfers is one of the most studied anti-poverty interventions globally. There are over 300 um, studies about cash transfers, and they undoubtedly move the needle on employment, food security mental health, physical health, they undoubtedly, these are not questions that exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Really, where there is room to grow is in the U.S., what does this look like in a variety of contexts? How do do different amounts of cash change certain outcomes? And how do some of the most economically marginalized and, and systematically vulnerable communities, how does cash really impact those communities those Mm -hmm. are the remaining questions that that we have and so we're very excited that our program will be statewide will be a heavy emphasis on rural communities in southwest georgia and so we hope that this program well this program will really have incredible learnings for across the country on what a a program with a wider reach that's maybe less targeted maybe universal Mm -hmm. um, under certain income thresholds would would look like in this country, and so I think we're still in the phase of what does that program look like? What would the, be the best way to design it? What would the focus of that program be? And we're excited that that this program in Georgia, Georgia will be home to continuing leading this work um, through this program.
1: And Councilmember Farooqi, before I let you. Um... Get the last word on this. Hope I did have a question from a listener who says, What happens when the program concludes? Any worry of participants sort of falling back into the situation they were in, or you, how will you all be able to maybe keep helping them? Do you have a, a plan for that?
4: Yeah, we, we, in the last six months of the program, well, first, most programs from across the country, what we've seen overwhelmingly is that even in a 12 month program, folks are able to take advantage of all types of of resources um, to essentially within the duration of the program, um, figure figure out ways to, to reach greater economic stability. So by and large program participants at the end of the program, typically are better off both from the program itself, but also the secondary resources they're able to access. Maybe they were able to secure a better, more reliable car that helped them transition into better, higher paying employment. Maybe they were able to transition to just have one job that's now higher paying. Um, uh, They're maybe able to go back to school, start a business. Uh, All of these things are things that we anticipate program participants will do during this, and that the vast majority will actually be better economically off at the end of this program. In addition to that, and our program is 24 months, not mm-hmm. just 12, sure. one of the long-running programs. Um, in addition to that, as the program is concluding, we will certainly be in, in great communication with, with each of the participants around the end of the program and doing everything we can to connect them to resources to, to ensure that they really have everything they need to be successful as they're transitioning out.
1: And Councilmember Roker, what does this mean in terms of if there was a universal or national program, a guaranteed income program that all uh, those who are eligible could take part in. And what do you think that looks like?
3: Yeah, look, I I think um Andrew Yang obviously brought this to the forefront through his presidential campaign. I think that the, the differentiating uh, angle here is a is realization that you know money is 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 whether well, it's finite or not is up for debate, but uh, it, it's scarce, right? And so if we're going to allocate public funds or even private funds for a guaranteed income or cash transfer program. Um, they should probably be directed first and foremost for those who are in greatest need, uh,
0: mm-hmm.
3: versus every single American, whether you're making five million dollars a year or five thousand dollars a year, um, getting that thousand dollars. His um, approach and a uh, universal basic income, as is often coined, is a is a fair one. And, and as things continue to get automated and jobs change, uh, I think we'll see enormous shifts in the labor market that create uh, vulnerability that may not exist today. And so the idea of a, a basic income for folks will be on the radar and on the, the public policy kitchen table, I think, for, for some time to come. But I, my personal opinion is that if we're going to do cash transfers, um, we should be using those scarce dollars for those who are most vulnerable.
1: Well said. Hope. <laughs> I start to call you Hope. <laughs> Atlanta City Councilmember Amir Farroki. I was also joined by Hope Sack, the executive director of the Georgia Resiliency and Opportunity Fund. We've been talking about a guaranteed income program. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Let us know how the program is, is progressing, please. Thank you, Rose. Thank you. It's Closer Look here on 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. Well, here we are again. Another surge in the COVID-19 pandemic caused by the highly transmissible Omicron variant. Now, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the top White House health advisor, said on ABC's This Week on Sunday, it's the worst wave yet. Well,
3: we are definitely in the middle of a very severe surge and uptick in cases. If you look At the upstreet, it is actually almost a vertical increase. We're now at an average of about 400,000 cases per day. Uh, Hospitalizations are up. There's no doubt about it. The acceleration of cases that we've seen is really unprecedented,
0: gone well beyond anything we've seen before.
1: Last week, health systems across Metro Atlanta revealed they're experiencing a staggering surge in COVID-19 cases caused by Omicron. Among them, Grady Health System. Of course, it runs the state's largest hospital, Grady Memorial, right here in Atlanta. And that's where Dr. Robert Jansen is. He's Grady's chief medical officer. He joins me now. Dr. Jansen, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you all are busy over there, so we appreciate you taking this time.
2: Thank you so much for letting me be here.
1: And you know it's a good segment when I get too Questions from the audience before you even come on air. (laughs) I'm going to get right to it. Uh, How are things looking right now, at Grady, for you all, just in general?
2: So, you know, as I was listening to Dr. Fauci, I was thinking, that doesn't tell the story. Mm -hmm. Um, When you hear vertical rise in cases, it really doesn't paint the picture of what, what we're seeing, which is an emergency room that is filled with patients that are on stretchers and hallways, every nook and cranny is, is occupied, a waiting room that is filled with patients waiting to be seen, mm-hmm. um, and a hospital that's full, that is already stretched to its limit, and now we have staff that is sick from COVID, and so it's further stressed the system. So it, it, it painting the picture of numbers really doesn't tell the story.
1: Begin with that because and we know that folks like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Rochelle Walensky who has been a guest on this program we know that folks at that high level with that much exposure we 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 assume they're doing the best they can and trying to get the information out but messaging Dr. Jansen has been an issue and I know for you maybe you can't focus on the messaging because you're all in the business of helping people but I do want to get your thoughts on messaging because that's been a problem for some people they don't know what to do or it changes from week to week or wear your mask, not wear your mask, yeah. get the fact, You know, that's been problematic, but we also should be fair. We've never been in a situation like this. Yeah.
2: Well, I think we're dealing with an evolving science, if you will. And so early on in the pandemic, I think we were looking for definite answers at a time we didn't have them. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the things that came out, sounded like we knew more than we did this is an evolving disease it's only been present for two years if you think about it so we are continuing to watch a disease evolve and then trying to adjust the message accordingly Mm. it creates confusion and Mm. and i think sometimes we do a little bit of disservice by coming out making proclamations that we then have to go back and say well Maybe that's not quite how it is. And I'll take vaccines, for example. You know, we, we initially came out thinking that vaccines would provide protection forever. Now we know vaccines will provide protection, but they not may not prevent you from being infected. They will help protect you from getting seriously ill. Well, mm-hmm. that's a change in the message.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: And it can be confusing if you've been listening all along. First you said they work, and now, well... They don't work quite as well as we thought. So I think we, you know, have to be very careful in how we, we talk about these things.
1: Well, and when we asked this, num- we asked this question mm-hmm. about the number of beds that you all have, and I think yes. for some people that can be, okay, so are you saying that if you give a number, and you don't have to give a number, but if I ask you that question, how many beds are open and people hear a number and someone is sick, whether they think they have COVID or not, mm-hmm. but I can't go to Grady because, one, this is the only – For some people, this is their primary care health physician. They may not even go to the hospital. And I want to be honest about something. I was sick over the holiday weekend. I was sick. I did not go to the hospital because I did not want to take a space from someone that desperately needed. So I (laughs) self-medicated. That's okay. I'm fine
4: now. I hope it (laughs) works. (laughs)
1: <laughs> in the good way, but but you can understand that. So, Absolutely. instead of asking you how many beds do you all currently have, what's the situation looking like in terms of you all being able to do your your normal pre pandemic mm-hmm. duties right. for so many?
2: Well, I, I think there are really two answers to this. first of all, I mean, all of our beds are occupied.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, and we have patients waiting in the emergency room who have been admitted, waiting for a bed upstairs. Mm-hmm that situation is a little bit more extreme than it normally is, but it's not unusual for us to be in that situation. What I am more afraid of is doing what you said. People are not coming to the hospital when they need to. And we are seeing the repercussions of that throughout the pandemic. Now people have delayed care. So then when they finally do come, you know, the disease that they have is more progressed. I mean, delaying cancer screening, delaying treatment for diabetes, delaying treatment for hypertension. We're seeing the ramifications of people hesitating to come in part because of the pandemic and they know they will have to wait. And we've got to assure people that if you come and you need care, we're going to provide it. And we do provide it. You know, you have to realize if you come with a minor illness, you may wait longer. Mm -hmm. But if you got a serious illness, we're going to take care of you immediately.
1: I want folks to do mine Was very minor. I just well, folks. They, Rose had a broken leg. Didn't go to the hospital. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't do that, Doctor Jansen. But Good. I do want to get to this because any, if you can give a percentage for the folks that are coming to Grady sure. that are sick with COVID, mm-hmm. the percentage that are probably unvaccinated or unvaccinated.
2: Sure. So, and I looked at that. I look at it every day, about 70% of the patients who come to the hospital requiring admission have not been vaccinated. So that means obviously about 30% of the people have been vaccinated. Most of those received their vaccination very early on. So in the first or second quarter of 2021 have not gotten the booster. And another number of those just recently got vaccinated. So it really hasn't even had time to take effect. So the vaccines clearly have helped protect people. Um, They have reduced the seriousness of the illness, you know, but they're not a hundred percent.
1: The voice you hear is Dr. Robert Jansen. He is Grady's chief medical officer. Dr. Jansen, I want to talk about your staff for a moment and just how are they doing and how are you all in terms of scheduling and staffing, and we know folks are working. Overtime seems like such an understatement, you know. Yeah. How are you all dealing with this?
2: Staffing is, is, a, is a problem and has been a problem since the beginning of the pandemic. You know, there's been a shortage of nursing, and I'll just focus on nursing for a second. There's been a shortage of nursing for over a decade now. We're not training enough nurses for what we need. Now you superimpose upon that the pandemic where people have left the workplace. We've had people leave to travel, you know, to go to other places where they can earn more money. It has stretched all the hospitals and us in particular to a very limit. Then superimpose on that people who are working here who've gotten sick Mm -hmm. because they're also exposed in the community. So we have even a shortage exacerbated by the number of people who've become ill. Everybody is working as hard as they can. We have people working extra shifts, working overtime. We have agency nurses that the state has helped support. And in spite of that, you know, we we could use more. But the good news is we have been able to take care of everybody who's come here. We have not turned people away. You know, there's no rationing of care of anything like that.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, But it is stressing us.
1: So that $100 million that Governor Brian Kemp promised to help to hospitals to find yeah. staffing, you all have been receiving those resources. Mm-hmm. Has it help? Is it helping at all?
2: Well, that, that particular impact hasn't been felt yet. They've got okay. to now recruit those nurses. We already had a number of uh, nurses that we had recruited uh, through agencies to help. And the state had helped fund that earlier through the cares act funding Um And they're continuing that. Thank goodness they are because it is a very expensive way to staff your facility. But we've not seen the impact of that new hundred million dollars because they've got to now find those nurses. And we're competing with every other state Mm -hmm. who is trying to also recruit nurses.
1: I want to talk about for a moment, because as you know, there was so much was riding on the the COVID treatment, the pills. Um, And we know that there was a, a I think hospitals were only given a limited supply to begin with then shipping delays. Cause well, you can have a whole nother conversation about that, but I'm wondering how this has affected your, 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 hospital's ability to function given that so much was riding on that treatment that it was going to help patients get better faster.
2: Yeah. Well, unfortunately we don't have any of the pills yet. Um, we're still waiting and, I, and we've been assured that we will get a shipment in, but You know, it's a scarce supply and we're just part of the distribution uh, that will receive them. You know, the pills will help. The monoclonal antibodies that we've talked about in the past will help. We also now are faced with the fact that the previous monoclonals don't work. So we're waiting for the new monoclonal and that's in short supply. So all of these things we know are coming. They're in the pipeline, but they haven't gotten here yet. So, you know, right now we're, we're doing the best we can.
1: Well, I want to focus on that for a moment because it sounds great when you hear whether it's our governor or any other governor or any or in Washington someone saying we're going to send all this help to the states. Can you can you pick up the phone and say Governor Kemp, uh, can you, we, can you yes, expedite we, this?
2: We we can and we have. Um, but the state hasn't gotten their supply. Okay. You know, so You know, when you announce a new treatment, a new pill, everybody's excited. But you've got to get it in distribution. And when you announce it before it's distributed, you create this expectation that we can't fulfill.
1: I have another question here from a listener who says, are we going to see a weakening in the severity of variants like we have with Omicron because of the number of vaccinated individuals? Or is it the nature of variants to not be as lethal or potent as the original virus over time? Good question. Our listeners are, they on it, aren't they?
2: Well, they, they, I tell you what, that's a tough question. I know. Um, I wish I had a crystal ball to answer that because <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, that's part of the problem. We've been very, you know, very forthcoming with saying we know this and we don't. The variants that evolve, which is the natural history of viruses, Will be either more or less virulent depending on what that variant looks like omicron is a little bit unique because it is so easily transmitted it, it is transmissible as like measles mm-hmm. for those people who remember measles if you were in a room with somebody with measles you caught the measles
5: mm-hmm.
2: that's how omicron is we are very fortunate that it is not quite as serious with regards to the illness it causes. If it were on the scale of a Delta or some of the other variants, you know, this would be, we would all be overwhelmed. We would not be able to take care of people. Fortunately, Omicron is not as virulent. It is transmissible, but we'll have to wait to see what the next uh, variant is.
1: Speaking of waiting to see, and I've asked this question so many times, I feel now (laughs) for the last two years, when we talk about what this pandemic, what this virus in terms of amplifying all the inequities and disparities. And here we go. <laughs> the gaps yeah. that exist in so many sectors within our lives. But obviously, when we talk about health care and then yes. public policy related to the healthcare, Dr. Jansen, you know this. This isn't lost on you. You're right there in the trenches, you know. Then what should come out of this in terms of what this nation needs to do to either overhaul or change or improve? It's approach to public health.
2: So, And take as long as you want. I I will go out on a limb, you know, and I may may get in trouble for this.
1: Uh, It's okay. It's closer look. I got you.
2: But, you know, we have failed. And we have failed miserably with regards to being able to provide care to everyone. And I think that is one of our obligations as a society, is to be able to provide health care to anyone and everyone, not just those who have insurance. That has come out so, so strongly during this pandemic where you have disadvantaged people who don't have access to health care, they don't have access to insurance. They have suffered much more than others. So we as a society, in my opinion, and this is my opinion, not Grady, okay, mm-hmm. is that we have got to do better. We have to have universal health care so that people have access to care when they need it. And we have failed.
1: Why does politics have to play such a role in this, Dr. Jansen?
2: Boy, I wish I could answer that. And, and you know, thank goodness you can already tell I'm not a politician. hmm Um, I, you know, we're an interesting country. We're an interesting society. We're so heterogeneous and it's so hard to get people to come together and, and work together. I think we can, I think we can all agree on things and we can do that, but it is difficult to do because everybody comes at it from their own viewpoint. Um, my viewpoint, I just said, and, and I'm sure that other people wouldn't share that.
1: When you're walking around, Grady, and I know you do, and I know you're talking to your staff, and, and maybe you even have a, an opportunity to talk to patients, or, or I'm sure you're observing, and then you, you're just taking all this in. Um, as you wrap up, Dr. Jansen, what's going through your mind?
2: You know, what I'm struck by is is the continued spirit of our staff, you know, our, our nurses, our physicians, everyone. They are so committed to taking care of people who come here. And it it is overwhelming. In spite of what seemingly is a desperate situation, they're discouraged at times, they're overworked, they're underappreciated. You know, the days of You know, people clapping and ringing bells and and pans for healthcare workers, that's over. You know, so now people, they're just doing their jobs. And I am constantly struck by the commitment, the dedication that they have, and the fact they come back day in and day out and keep doing it.
1: And how are you holding up in all this?
2: You know, I've got the easiest job because I'm not there at the bedside every minute. So you know, my job is to make sure they have their resources and make sure they know we support them as best we can. Um, it's 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 painful at times to see the pain that they have.
1: That's why you're advocating for those resources for the staff, for the people Absolutely. that you all serve. Absolutely. Do you have Governor Kemp's number? You want me to give it to you?
2: <laughs> I have it actually. <laughs> All right. And he's been very responsive. I mm-hmm. will tell you.
1: And been yeah. others not picking on the governor, but
2: yeah, no, no. Governor yeah. Kemp has has to to his credit done everything he can to help us. Um, you know, he has limited resources, and there are times when I would want to do things differently. But I'm not going to sit here and, and and say anything negative. He has been a friend. He's been with us. He listens to us when we call him. Um you know, I think we've been supported as much as he can provide.
1: I think that's uh, much needed for folks that need to hear it. We talk yeah. about politics and all of this. Yeah. Dr. Yeah. Robert Jansen, chief medical officer for the Grady Health System. Thank you so much. And, of course, to you and all the healthcare workers, your entire staff, everyone over at Grady. Stay safe and, and thank you.
2: Thank you. Take care of yourself. Well, bye-bye.
1: And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Sam Whitehead is our senior producer. Our editors are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson and Danielle Reze- Daniel Rezell. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. You can always send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, you know Closer Look is weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast. So, subscribe to this program wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, amplifying Atlanta's voices that you need to hear, like on today's program. I'm Rose Scott.